episode 52 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today, we're talking with one of the pioneers of law enforcement training. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, episode 52 of the podcast. My name is Adam Kanakin. Thanks so much for being here. This is really so much fun being able to put these out there for you. So I just want to say thank you to you for your support. If this is the first time here, welcome. And uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast because we have a lot of stuff coming down the pipe for you. We have a lot of events coming up with the ILET Network, which is something that we're going to be announcing very shortly. So if you're listening to this in the future, you already know where to find us. If you're listening to this right now, stay tuned. We have many, many events coming up on the heels of the ILET Summit that we ran in July. Today's episode is with one of the pioneers in law enforcement training when it comes to use of force and force science. And that, of course, is Dr. Bill Lewinsky. If you don't know who Bill is, he is a world-leading expert when it comes to human dynamics involved in high-stress and life-threatening encounters. He is the executive director of the Force Science Institute. If you're in law enforcement, and especially if you're a use of force instructor and you're not already involved with the Force Science Institute, Go to forcescience.org. The link is going to be in the show notes here. You have to check them out. Their training is the best in the world. Um, You've known, if you listen to this podcast, a lot of the experts that we've had on, guys like Chris Butler, Mike Musango, Jamie Borden, all of them have been a part of Force Science. Uh, Laura Scary, um, who was on our panel for uh, officer-involved shootings for the roundtable, Really, the list goes on and on. I work with these guys as much as I possibly can because they are world leaders in use of force training and force science. So make sure to check them out. And so today's episode, I get to sit down with Bill. We jumped on the phone. We talked about a lot of different things involved with training, what's going on currently in the world right now, and a lot behind the science and the research that's been conducted and how that directly applies to you as a law enforcement officer, as a law enforcement trainer and how you directly apply that to your training and the training development within your agency. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump right into the episode. Here we go. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time and joining here us here on the podcast. I've been so excited to, uh, to finally get you on the show, man. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Adam, it's our pleasure to be here. You know, we had the opportunity of having you on a live roundtable during the ILET Summit where we talked about use of force. I think we had like nine uh, instructors on there, a lot of whom have worked together and some were kind of new to the game, uh, not new to the game, but new to the group that we had kind of established. That was a lot of fun. Did you, was there anything from that that you really found valuable about these, these big group discussions where we have a lot of instructors sharing ideas? I, I think that type of approach is really valuable. It's a uh, dynamic interaction between knowledgeable people that really kind of stretches the parameters of, of what people are thinking. And uh, one of the things that characterized that group above all else was it, it was not only the enthusiasm for training, but the respect that everybody had for each other. 
uh, and, and the, uh, the ideas that came out were considered and thought about and, and processed. And that is so valuable for the people involved as well as for those that are uh, observing. It, it's not a fight about is this right or is that right or is this approach right? It's everyone seemed committed to moving the profession forward and listening to the best way to do that, trying to find that. And, and being a part of that sort of process was really, really exciting and very gratifying. Yeah, it was amazing to have you on. Um, I know a lot of the uh, instructors were excited. We kind of kept it a secret from them, right? We were like, uh, who's the mystery guest, uh, which was a lot of fun. And a lot of people, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably heard me mention for science before. I do it quite often. But I want, Bill, I want to give you a second to maybe talk about and explain kind of what for science is and how it came about and why you, when you talk about leading the way in, in law enforcement training, especially in the, in the field of use of force training and, and a whole bunch of other different types of things uh, like studying and, um, and the actually academic component of it. Can you break down a little bit about what force science is about and kind of how that whole, how the whole company came to be? Okay. Well, Adam, I, uh, uh, certainly had been uh, in squad cars since uh, <laughs> a very long time. There was a period there where I was teaching at Minnesota State University in Mankato. And, and we had a, um, and still have, a four-year law enforcement degree program. It is not as clinically based as it was when I was teaching there, but uh, our graduates, at, after four years, would be licensed eligible to work as police officers. So we included the an integrated academic and what's called a clinical uh, program. And I, I was teaching in that program, and I was teaching a number of courses, one of which was arrest and control techniques, and the other was, we didn't call it that, but it was arrest and control techniques, and the other was uh, a course on, on tactical communication. I don't only taught that, but I also was coordinator of the law enforcement program. So, uh, in essence, uh, I connected us to POST and basically was a, a program director connected directly to POST, making sure that we met all of our POST uh, requirements. But I was also chairperson of the Department of Government. And I was looking at how elsewhere in the university, we were really, really working hard to have a science-based foundation for what we were doing. And the curriculum I was teaching was not evidence-based. Uh, it was based on reputation. It was based on what's known as eminence. It is what people who seemed to know what was going on were recommending to be taught at the time. And there was little evidence either for the arrest and control techniques we were doing, the fashion in which we were teaching them, the communication that I was teaching, the kinds of circumstances uh, that I was bringing those communication challenges to, there was little evidence for that. And the more I delved into what we were doing and why we we're doing uh, it, the more it became apparent to me that we had no science at all for an, the underlying uh, foundation of what and how we were teaching our academy stuff. And by the way, that pervades all of Minnesota and pervades all of the United States and we have done training assessment programs uh, in the UK, Canada, and the US, and it pervades all of that. The methodology we use to teach what it is we're teaching really is questionable. So as I was beginning to get into this and explore this, 
I realized that we needed uh, to begin to develop a, an evidence foundation for what we were doing. Uh, and then we needed, once we assess that, and we're at the stage is where we are in the final components of assessing that, we're now moving toward how are we doing that? And how can we begin to incorporate the science about human beings learn what it is they learn so they make great decisions and really use those skills very effectively uh, in the types of situations that they encounter. I'll give you an example. Right now, for instance, uh, we have everyone in the state of Minnesota and elsewhere teach a, takes a course on law. They take a course on arrest and control techniques. Uh, nary the two shall meet in most places. It's very interesting because I can't name a profession that deals with an applied skill in which that skill is regulated and the individuals coming out of the training facility have not made hundreds if not thousand decisions about how the skills and those regulations are interfaced together to apply to a human performance problem that they will experience as a professional. But in law enforcement, we do it. And the person who bears the brunt of that is the officer. So this started long ago when I began searching for what is the foundation for what it is we're doing and how we're doing it. And since that time, we have come a very long way. Yeah. I mean, you guys, when, when I talk about training, and everybody says, well, where do I go to get the best training? Usually the first words out of my mouth are force science um, and force science Institute. And uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people who have listened to the podcast previously know quite a few of your uh, instructors that you have on staff right now, right? People like Chris Butler, Mike Musango, um, obviously Laura scary. And so, and then we have quite a few people that have been on your staff or worked with you in the past also, it seems like some of the best of the best come through for science in some way, shape or form. And I think it's because you guys really tie together the research and the science and you tie it together with the practical application, which is what we find is missing. We, we have, usually we have one or the other, but it's hard to put them together and that's what you specialize in with that. You guys have some studies that are coming out right now that you've, been putting together. Can we talk a bit about those? Because those are really exciting. Um, and the, the information that's coming out of those is groundbreaking. It, it sure is, Adam. And, and we're really, uh, we're excited about the, uh, about the studies, um, primarily because they're moving into uh, a direction. Well, uh, I should start first by saying that one of the first things we did, uh, and it's been misunderstood, but one of the first things we did was started looking at how quickly assaults occur and, and uh, people turn and the dynamics of an encounter and what are the realities of the types of problems, physical kinds of challenges that officers will encounter in, in the street. Uh, and uh, that started out because uh, we were not looking at how to make officers faster because you could get faster by, by training and building your skill better. But the idea is really if you're an athlete, for instance, how do you make a soccer goalie faster at what they do? Well, there's a certain limitation, and beyond that limitation, you can't really push it much further. And so the same thing exists. If an officer walks up on a, on a vehicle and, and the driver pulls a gun on the officer, how do we make the officer faster? 
we have the same problems. There are human limitations to what you can do in certain situations. And, and the answer to solve that problem lays in how do we identify where we should be, the nature of the incident, and what we can do to contain and control that incident so we're more effective. It is a pre-event uh, elements where, where officers have the best chance of containing, controlling, and offsetting situations in which they can't be fast enough. And so what we needed to do was look at how quickly do things unfold and what are the accompanying circumstances that allow somebody to really be effective in decision-making around that. So we, we spent a great deal of time initially on looking at those dynamics. And that's part of the science foundation that, that we, uh, we use to establish for science. Uh, right now, though, we are deeply into uh, what, what's the interpretation of these dynamics? How well have we defined what it is we're looking at? How precise are our measurements? How accurate are they? And, and what are the implications, not just for law enforcement, for the police world, but also for other areas? So we have multiple studies uh, that are about to surface, and two right now are going into, at least we're applying, uh, they're under review for uh, journals in forensic science, uh, coroner's journals, basically, in which we're looking at uh, bullet strikes and bullet dynamics and human performance elements uh, in which someone would be engaged in a force encounter with an officer. Uh, and then because of those circumstances, they would be shot or hit. And, and what we're looking at is what are the human performance dynamics that people assessing the scene really need to understand. So we have, we have gone from how quickly does something occur? How does an officer read that situation so they can understand it better, contain control, offset it if possible? Two, what are the implications if an officer has to act? How do we help other people understand why those events occurred the way that they did? And um, years ago, probably uh, about 10 years ago, uh, a coroner, actually a, it was a consortium of coroners out of uh, UCLA and, and uh, uh, USC, uh, asked us to write a component of a textbook for them. And it was coroners writing a textbook for coroners. And they wanted us to take our research and tell coroners what the meaning of that research was. And we could do it off our current research at that time, but the five studies that we have coming out right now are really pretty impactful. And we're looking at uh, really using that foundation to help coroners understand that they should A, stick to their profession, which is dealing with the body as it is um, on the slab on, on the table in a, uh, uh, an appropriate position. Uh, and they should not take that and move past that into the dynamics of an encounter. Uh, that's one of the things we were asked to write in that textbook, and that's one of the things that we are um, looking at now. For instance, um, uh, there have been coroners on TV and very high-profile cases speaking about uh, bullet path patterns and bodies being struck by bullets and moved, et cetera. And uh, our first impression is, wow, what do they know about human performance dynamics? Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. 
Um, uh, are you, you're familiar with avatars, correct? I am. Yeah, well, um, there's a high-speed motion capture system that we used on assault and movement dynamics uh, in which we had multiple cameras uh, filming at 120, 140 frames a second, all synced and providing data into an avatar. Uh, that's one of the studies that's gone on for corners. And, and I want you to listen to this because the implications are really pretty serious. One-fifth of the subjects, and we had them moving on treadmills, walking on treadmills because these cameras have to be positioned, and, uh, et cetera, and yet the people had to be moving. So we had them on a treadmill, which was not entirely a totally stable uh, surface, uh, but we had them point back and then turn back again. And that's all we had them do. But here's the implications. One fifth of our population, these are people under 25, one fifth of our population could point, point directly back at them, but from the torso to the hips, their lower back was parallel to the lateral plane. Meaning that if they had a gun in their hand when they were pointing back, an officer shot them in the mid to low back, that bullet would enter at a direct 90 degree angle uh, from back to front. And it would look like they had turned and were now in some other fashion. But at that point in time, they would have been pointing a gun directly at the officer. Unless you understand that possibility, if you end up with someone on your table with a bullet that goes from back to front at a direct 90 degree angle to the lateral side plane, your conclusion is this person's going to be facing away and running away and is no longer a threat. And so what, what, we're, what we're saying to the investigators and to evaluators is if you don't have a camera on the scene, you really need to be very careful about the conclusions you draw about the movement dynamics uh, and what is occurring in there, because what your opinion is might be your opinion, and it's not going to be based on, on science and on, on a foundation of human uh, dynamics. What we're looking at is trying to inform individuals about the reality of an encounter. Uh, and by the way, speaking about cameras, uh, we have been deeply into body cams and what cameras do and do not do and what people's interpretations are about that. So that's, that's a whole nother area. But uh, let me give you another set of studies that we're working on besides those five on human dynamics. We're, we're deeply into understanding interbeat variability and startle reflexive response. And I, I, I might need to help your audience understand that. Uh, but if you look at um, how we try to develop stress in officers, we have them run. We have them work really hard physically. Uh, and the idea is we put them under stress and now we can get them to make decisions under stress uh, and to shoot under stress and to do all sorts of things under stress. And the reality is uh, that's not so. Physical stress is about as different from um, psychological stress uh, as a mountain is from a mohill. There is no comparison between the two. I'll, I'll give you a, an example. Uh, I, was, um, I was with uh, uh, a, an attorney and we, we were meeting at, in, in South Phoenix to plan some stuff. 
and uh, went on a run on South Mountain. And South Mountain, uh, it's beautiful running trails on the south of Phoenix. And I happened to be sprinting hills with, uh, with this attorney. And in the middle of the hill, and it's about 200 meters long, uh, about 220 yards, uh, and it's about a 45-degree angle. Uh, and uh, halfway up the hill, I turned to my partner, who's an attorney, and I say, uh, uh, Bill, what is 33 by 22? And he tells me to go, you know what? Because all of his attentional resources are focused on maintaining his effort to get up the hill. But once we're up the hill, his pulse is 190 beats a minute. He can see horizon, he can see his watch. He can work the mechanics on his watch. And I ask him 22 by 33 and he gives me the answer. Physical distress does not correlate with the cognitive response that comes when you come face to face with someone with the intent and ability to kill you who's acting on it in that moment. I understand the need of officers, trainers, to push close to the reality of an encounter as they're trying to stretch the, um, the, the skills that they're uh, trying to expand on, on their students. But to equate physical distress with the psychological distress is really to not understand the relationship between those two. Because the brain not only operates differently, but the heart does as well. There's a very different beat system and there's a different variability in that beat that we are paying close attention to as we're doing uh, actually two research projects that we're just in the process of finishing. And both of them are, uh, are part of a PhD uh, study for a, uh, a person graduating in exercise physiology. But we're looking at a stress response in relation to a life-threatening situation. And along with that, uh, and I'll take you back to the podcast because one of the people on the group was Tony Blauer. And Tony Blauer is noted for his startle reflexive response. And boy, did that study validate Tony Blauer's startle reflexive response. Because a considerable number of officers, when they were suddenly confronted in the middle, we had them get tied up in an encounter dealing with a, uh, a witness to a violent event when they were suddenly approached and assaulted by the perpetrator of that event they were investigating. And under the assault, that rapid assault, we got a startle reflexive response in a significant number of our subjects that meant their hands were coming up almost as if they were going to protect their face. The problem was they had to drive to get their gun out to defend themselves. And the startle reflexive response was not conditioned or correlated with an appropriate reaction in that situation to go for the gun versus to protect against a physical threat. So we have, we've recorded that. I don't know if Tony's, uh, uh, Tony Blauer has recorded that at all, but it surfaced in our study and it's a very interesting sort of component to it. But we're looking at how do we condition a startle reflexive response to something that might be more appropriate for the type of event that created that startle. So if there's an assault against the upper body, you come up to the head. If there's an assault to the lower body, you go down. If there's a deadly force assault, you go for your gun. If that's possible, if that's your choice, how do we condition the appropriate response 
as the next question. Maybe we should talk to Tony about that. But that's a really interesting sort of component that is coming out of that research. So we're getting startle response and we're getting a uh, uh, interbeat variability response that connects to arousal levels, which then connects to memory and other sorts of issues that we're also in the process of investigating. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we can, and, and that, that'd be a great conversation. We should do one where it's uh, the three of us on a call. I'm sure Tony would love to do that as well. You know, and we talked about it during that round table. It's really kind of, two sides to the same coin, which is, which is why I love the, the dichotomy of it is that, you know, Tony's been teaching that stuff for, for years, like 30 years almost. And now it's coming around to, it's like, well, how do we prove that? And that's what you really specialize in is it's taking the science and figuring the science. We may know that that's how it works, but in a court of law, which is where you do a lot of work is how do we actually prove this? Right. There's, there's a reason why you have had articles published in peer-reviewed journals of applied ergonomics, of psychology, of forensic science. It's because you found a way to take what some of the best trainers do instinctively and, and find a way to, to break it down so that people can understand it at an academic and scientific level, which I think is absolutely fascinating. It, it literally had to be there. Uh, otherwise, we, we were back, not from the point of evidence, but we were there from the point of eminence. It, it was trainers, and I've got a great deal of respect for Tony and for what he's, he's discovered and how he's used it. Uh, I've got a great deal of respect for that. But until we get the proof for that, the evidence uh, is kind of is in limbo from the point of view of, A, being a foundation for what we can use as a scientific foundation for learning, and, B, uh, what we can then take into the court system. Uh, and, and have officers understand why they did what they did and help others understand it. And there's a science foundation for it. This is a great kind of lead in to another question that I wanted to ask you, because when we talk about taking and explaining things in a court of law, you know, there's, as we know, doesn't matter if you're in Canada, if you're in the U S or other Commonwealth countries around the world, usually if it's a significant case there's going to be some sort of jury and with that jury means you have people of the general public right of your community the problem is is that that general public may or may not understand anything about policing may not understand anything about the science and i know one of the things that you're passionate about talking about is getting the public invested and getting them involved in the education of what we need to be teaching them about the profession of policing, about the science behind these interactions between the police and the community. Um, where, where does that conversation start? When we talk about what does the public need to know about the policing profession, where, where do you think is a great starting point for that? Well, I, I want to start with a bit of a caveat at first, because you know, we've, we've done a fair number of uh, uh, projects and consultations with, for instance, um, uh, medical schools. Uh, in fact, uh, in our five-day class, we have, we have five MDs teaching in our, in our medical class, um, four of whom are connected to uh, – uh, pardon me, three of whom are connected to medical schools in, in two different countries – so they're all on the teaching staff of medical schools. Uh, now, they all have, in some form, 
civilian boards that assist them in understanding the needs and the, um, and the rights of patients and advocating for the needs and the rights. But not a single MD that we work with would have a civilian tell them how to do repair on a broken bone or surgery. But boy, it seems like when we pull people, civilians into the police world, uh, they already know how to do things. <laughs> I don't know where they learned it, but, but they already know what's right and what isn't and how it should be done. And it's, it's absolutely amazing uh, to me. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I first started my, very, my professional career working as an uh, intake social worker at a psychiatric facility in Canada. And it was prior to the days of meds. And so when we had someone uh, with uh, alcoholic uh, DTs, um, they literally suffered through it. And when someone was in the state of a psychotic episode and, and was losing it, or in a state of mania, uh, it was physical control techniques. And it didn't look good and wasn't good. And people got hurt on both sides uh, because all we had was the physical restraints uh, that were open to the staff on, on the wards. Well, a long time later, and now officers are facing individuals in the street that are high on meth and high on cocaine and high on uh, fentanyl and high on a variety of other sorts of chemicals and, and we have uh, turned people loose from psychiatric facilities. We have discharged them unless they're danger to themselves or others, not provide community resources, and turn the problem over to the police. And when the police address those issues, it doesn't look good. But I doubt that there's a person watching an incident between an officer and someone in the midst of um, a chemical overdose who is really in a state of mania or someone in XD or some other circumstance um, who, I don't know what they're thinking about a better way to handle it, but officers don't have drugs and they have to control it physically. And it's, it's, really, it's really a tough situation officers are in. Now, I, I know what it looks like when NCIS arrives. I know what it looks like when LAPD SWAT arrives. <laughs> I've got those shows. I, I, I got it, but the reality is, um, I don't know that we can ever train people to physically and psychologically handle situations with a high degree of poise and sophistication that we are running into today in the street. It's, it's really a very difficult challenge. And it raises the issue that pro police profession today uh, encounters more and varied situations than any other profession in the world. It, it is the most varied from the point of view of skills needed, and it is the most varied from the point of view of the types of situations that they encounter. So given that, you have to compare it with what I said earlier, that I know of no profession that trains people so poorly but expect so much. And that is not understood by the civilians who think officers are gifted. They, <laughs> I, I don't know what they think. 
I just know that we have done a survey. It's not published because we've only surveyed eight different universities and 400 students. But we know that the police use of force, I'll give you a discrepancy here between reality and civilian and their perception. Police use of force in all arrest situations is actually well under 1%. I'll repeat that. Arrest situations in which officers are most likely to face resistance, the use of force is less than 1%. And in that use of force situations, deadly force is a small portion of 1% of all of that 1% of force. So it is really a small portion. And yet when we do a survey of undergraduate students at some major universities in the Midwest and in the South, in Florida, for instance, the students tell us that they believe that police officers shoot one out of five citizens that they interact with. Uh, it's absolutely astounding. <laughs> it's absolutely astounding. The lack of understanding of A, the type of problems officers encounter, the reality of those encounters, how difficult they are, the challenge within the profession to build the skills, to, to recruit the people and build the skills and provide those people with the resources they need on, on the street. All of that is, is really missing from our communication and our dialogue with, with people in the community. And so I think there's a lot they do not know. Uh, and yet, yet they believe they do. And, and that's, the, that's the conundrum, is how do you help people who are firmly convinced that something is going to work to solve the problem when they don't even know what the problem is. Uh, in fact, um, I was just reading something from uh, Evidence-Based Policing, which is uh, the American Society for Evidence-Based Policing. Uh, and, um, and they were saying that if we're going to do something, we should actually do something that works. And my comment, my thought on that rather, was the very first thing we need to do is define the problem. And one of the things I'm finding with civilians is civilians think they know what the problem is, but it hasn't been very well defined. We throw all sorts of things at the profession, primarily promoted by civilians, that are not evidence-based, and we have tried them. Uh, I don't know if you remember when body cams were not in prevalent use, that people expected body cams to solve the problem with perceived excessive force by police. And now what we find is we have body cams providing evidence <laughs> that perceived excessive force is still fairly high. And, and it, I should be careful because I'm calling it perceived excessive force, not actual excessive force. You need to know what is required to handle a situation before you come to a conclusion. It's excessive. And so anyway, the point is, uh, body cams were not the answer. We thought communications was the answer. That's communications are not the answer. Uh, de-escalation is the answer. Uh, de-escalation is not the answer. We need to define the problem before we implement a solution. And that, solu that problem needs to, needs to be defined empirically and the solution needs to be evidence-based 
for actually changing the dynamics of what you're uh, dealing with. I, I'll give you an illustration. I am a firm believer in the effect of communication, but communication that is taught effectively so the officer can actually implement it. Uh, we, for instance, uh, did an assessment on communication in a country other than the United States and found that they were severely deficient in communication and built a program, a program for them that provided four times the amount of practical exercise and information they had previously. You see, it's not that communication was deficient, the instruction was deficient and the people graduating could not make use of what they were taught because they were not taught it in a way that helped them understand and be able to apply that in a fashion uh, such that they could use it. And so uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an illustration. If I happen to be working with a, a survivor of a domestic violence incident, I need to look at, it's a decision process, what method of communication and in particular persuasion am I going to use to gain the cooperation and encourage this person to do the thing that I perceive as most appropriate for them in this circumstance? That is a decision process and requires knowledge and skills at a very high level. And at this point in time, I know of no academy in North America that teaches communication and persuasion skills to that level. And the reason we need to go to that level actually come out very visible to us on a study that we did on traffic stops. We had a defiant, resistant driver role-playing the driver on a traffic stop. The officers would come up. They, the officers that, that were our subjects in the study would come up, try to engage our subject in dialogue. And as soon as our driver could, he shot him. And we were looking for automatic reactions. We're looking for path of travel, memory for what occurred. There's a variety of things we were looking at. But what we discovered was really a surprise to us, was we discovered that officers who are focused on the tactics and controlling the hands lack the cognitive workspace to address, to solve, to persuade, to remember what the communication was. And officers who are focused on the communication couldn't tell us and could not control the tactics, the hands, the threat situation. You know, if, if you can't drive a vehicle down the road and talk on a cell phone at the same time because your cognitive working space is so small that if you direct your attention to one or the other, you lose the capacity to deal with the other, well, the same thing relates to police and to their interaction with the public. If we don't build those skills to an automatic level, the officer cannot implement them and doesn't know how to implement them in a dynamic clinical situation, a dynamic encounter. And so just as we found in our studies outside the US and in the US and in Canada, we found that communication skills were not built to a sophisticated level. De-escalation skills, Two hours, there are at least a handful of states in this country that are trying to teach de-escalation in two hours a year. Now, we've got what we think is a pretty good two-hour de-escalation course that we built with Vertra 
uh, and it's interactive and it's flat screen and, and it, uh, it's really engaging and it's really pretty good. But the thing about that that's really different than anything else is we build on the skills the officers already bring to the course. Instead of teaching the officer new skills, we teach the officer how to stretch the skills that they've got and apply them to really challenging people and challenging situations. And so we're working with, instead of teaching new stuff, we're working with stuff that officers are using every day and we're presuming are, are fairly skillful because they've been working with that uh, for all of their career. And, and we're helping them use that in a very different way. And we think that's the only way that we could teach uh, de-escalation effectively within a very short time frame. You know, one of the things when I'm, I'm hearing you say this, you know, you say like, we've tried communication training, okay, and, and that isn't an answer in itself, but it's part of the answer. Same thing with de-escalation, same thing with use of force, same thing. It's all, every piece of training that we're trying to use is a part of the answer, but it's not an answer in itself, which is why I love what you were talking about there and you just brought up Vertra, um, because the one thing that came to mind when you said, well, what's the fundamental problem? Like, what are we trying to solve? I think from a law enforcement perspective, and, and I would hypothesize that the amount of the training, whether it's the amount of training or the quality of training or both are substandard for law enforcement today, which is my passion, which is bringing better training to law enforcement around the world, not just in the US, not just in Canada, but around the world, because it can always be improved. There's always a place to improve it. And what you, uh, what for science and what virtue you guys developed is really revolutionary um, in terms of the training methodologies behind it. So um, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the, the reason why you've had to create this new type of training and, and why you created it. Well, we, we want to look at that, that uh, program with Vertra uh, is, is a start, uh, but it comes out of a view that we have that law enforcement uh, has a history, and that history, uh, again, I've got a caveat, that history is of teaching individuals as if they're in a trade. And it's not only that we're treating law enforcement as a trade, but we're doing a poor job of it. When barbers in any state in this country require two to four times the amount of in-class and at least four times the amount of in-service training as we have in the police world, and cosmetologists, the same thing. Plumbers and electricians embarrass us compared to, the, to barbers for the amount of training provided to somebody in the profession. And notice... I said profession. We continue to think the way to, to help build officers is to treat them like they're in trade school. And we, we need, we need I, God, I, I don't want universities and criminal justice people getting a hold of police training. Because <laughs> they don't know how human beings learn a skill and how to actually make decisions around that skill. Uh, which you really have got to have. You, you need a clinical program. Uh, engineering, nursing, uh, pre-med, uh, exercise PIVs. These are programs that are extensively involved and applied in clinical uh, fashion uh, in universities. But most of criminal justice and uh, sociology people, they come out of uh, College of Social and Behavioral Science that really doesn't deal with anything applied in clinical at all. 
And so we need to, to look at how do we teach a profession how to have the skills and make decisions with those skills. And as you might have gathered, I'm pushing toward advanced training that's significantly beyond anything that we're doing. But if we're going to do something in the short term, it's got to be evidence-based. And it's got to be based on a lot of uh, decisions and interaction. Uh, we have to capture people's attention. We have to build and, and interweave skills so that those skills are linked and connected uh, together because that's how they're practiced. You can't take law on the side, arrest and control on the side, traffic stops on the side, uh, communication on the side, and then have one or two scenarios at the end of the academy where they come together. No, yeah, I, I, I would not go to a doctor <laughs> that, that had uh, learned about diseases over here and surgery over here and something else over here. Uh, it's all integrated. We need to build professionals and we're not doing that at this point. And uh, Virtua with their, uh, their strength in, in their uh, process the interactive video process and our approach with a, an understanding of human behavior and the dynamics of human behavior, particularly human behavior in a variety of situations. So uh, looking at, at that thing, it's, it's, a, it's a good marriage. Uh, and we're really uh, hoping that the, uh, the programs we're working on uh, will really be effective in building what we think are important skills. And in a fashion that those skills will not only be retained will also be usable in complex situations. And retain for me is important. We did a three-year study. It cost us a million dollars, a million to earn dollars for science. We made 10,000 videos of skill acquisition and perishability in three major state academies. And we found that by time people graduated from the academy, they could barely do the skills that they were looking at. And we, we used the rest and control skills as models for all other skills, including communication and decision and, and the rest of it, because it allowed us to measure things in very visible and a very dynamic way. And we found that by the time people graduated from the academy, the skills were not functional in a non-stress situation. The person could not replicate the skill 40% uh, less than 40% actually hit a main step. They could do a main step that would make that skill function. For instance, uh, if it's weapon takeaway, you have got to be able to touch the arm or touch the weapon of somebody that you're taking the weapon away from. And 60% uh, didn't even make contact with the arm as they're trying to do weapon takeaway. A total failure. And to, to do that skill against resistance, very few had it. You could count on one hand the number of people graduating from the academy that could use the skills they learned in a combative, uh, interactive, dynamic situation. And the same relates to communication skills because it's taught in the same way. And what was even more dramatic for us is we came back to one of the academies six months later and the skill levels were at 28% of what was measured when they were taught the skills. Six months after graduating from the academy. And so when I talk about retention, I am really serious about this. I don't care what it is that's important for you to teach. You need to teach it in a way 
that is meaningful so that people understand and value it, they can retain it, and they can make use of it. And that's an evidence foundation training program. And we know how to do that. We've worked with some of the best experts, uh, professors from UCLA and McMaster's and, and, and uh, the United Kingdom, Leftborough and, and Penn, Penn State, uh, on skill acquisition. And we understand that how we're doing it in the police profession needs to be different. Bertra understands that as well. Uh, and in our, in our training programs, especially our advanced uh, specialist program, uh, we, get, we not only introduce our students to the topic areas about how to do it this way, but they get to, be, uh, they get to interview the experts who did that. Uh, for instance, they get to interview uh, Tim Lee, who is now co-author version six of the text Motor Learning and Performance. Uh, Gary Klein, who has created a model of decision-making that is directly applicable to force and, and is, uh, is much more appropriate than anything we see teaching in academy. Uh, Gary Klein was uh, co-author of many, many uh, articles with uh, a guy that won a Nobel Prize for decision-making. Klein's right up there. And are the students in our advanced course not only read Klein's work and other, other work on, on decision-making, but they get to interview Gary Klein um, about their problems and, and what Klein thinks about how to help their officers become better decision-makers. So we're deeply enmeshed and committed to improving the profession. And I think that starts way back. You asked me where we started. We started way back when I was teaching, God knows what, for what reason, because I was told to do so. And it's a questioning of why and how that led us to be here. And we formed great partnerships. But most of all, Adam, as, as you point out, we have been very, very gifted by the people who have come to us and want to work with us. Uh, and, and that includes you and, and includes so many other people, uh, literally internationally. Um, Australia, South Africa, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Germany. Uh, we have worked with some of the best officers, some of the best scholars in those countries. And it's been a blessing to us at Force Science. And I talk about us because I'm the face, but there's, as you note, there's a hell of a teaching team and research team behind us. In fact, right now we have four universities working with us on our research projects. So it's, it's a hell of a team uh, that we have trying to make this profession better and trying to do justice for the officers who are out there tackling the problems that society challenges them with. You know, that's when I, I tell people all the time, get outside your bubble, right? Get outside yep. your own box and, and get information and knowledge from other places. You know, it's funny because... I can say that till I'm blue in the face when I say, go try, go look at these different countries, see what they're doing, go see what these different organizations and companies are putting together for training that are leading the way in, in training development. And then you take a, a organization or company like Force Science and you are doing the exact same thing and reaching out and getting knowledge and information from a bunch of other places because you understand that that is where that innovation comes from, that you're not going to always have the best idea. Like other pe you need other people. You need to be able to bounce ideas off of other people to, to really create these, these innovations in training. 
And I would love to, I'd love to ask you because a lot of people that listen to this podcast are law enforcement instructors. They're instructors, they're FTOs, uh, or maybe they're even recruit officers, but they listen to this and they say, well, that's great, but how can I apply that to, to me? Right? Like, how does this, how does this apply to me? So can we take, maybe, can we maybe create an example uh, for a, a, an academy instructor on like one topic and, and maybe give them a, a quick explanation of what you've seen now, usually in academy training versus what they could be doing to start interleaving their training without having to have a whole new budget and redesign their training programs. Because I think the most amazing thing about what we're talking about when we talk about interleaving training is it's really just a concept of how you're actually producing the training content for your students. It's not, it's not something that costs money. It's, it's really on the instructor to be able to take that and integrate it in a different way. So can we, can we maybe create an example there that you could walk through to, to help an instructor on how would they do this themselves in their academy class? Sure. And uh, forgive me again, but I need to start with a foundation. That's good. Okay. And, and that foundation is that part of what makes us different uh, and, and this will directly relate to the question you, you have just asked, is that we see law enforcement as being interdisciplinary, meaning that it, it, is, it is not just the brain. It is how we build the skills. It was, it's how we teach people to see things. It is how we build social and emotional intelligence in the officer, in, in the academy, how we facilitate better decision-making. So uh, it is... Uh, it is a composite because we see the officer as a totality of a human being who brings together all sorts of skills and ability and experiences, but that's integrated in the human being. And then we isolate things out in blocks <laughs> and teach them in these separate blocks, and we expect them to put it all together. So we see law enforcement as being uh, interdisciplinary coming from all sorts of things. It's physiology, it's psychology, uh, it's physical skills, it's, it's weapon skills. Uh, and even with weapon skills, it's physics and it's, it's neurology. Uh, your neuromotor pattern for drawing a gun, for instance, how do we build that? How do we coordinate that with the eye? Because that is so critical. If there's anything missing in firearm skills, it's how the eye and the brain work together and the automaticity of the skill. So that is all like that's visual, that's cognitive, that's motor training and performance, that's equipment characteristics, that's analysis of errors. Uh, God, it, it is so complex an area. So it's interdisciplinary. But if you hadn't gathered, it's also integrated. Uh, because all those, those skills come together, all of those areas come together in the human being. And we need to take some things out and teach them by themselves, but we, we have got to, as we move forward, integrate them. The third component that we see, which is really critical, and we'll talk about a skill, but it's so much more important than the skill, is it's clinical. Nobody uses a term in law enforcement clinical, but we started long ago saying law enforcement is a clinical profession. I want you to think about a clinical. A clinical profession is one which does an assessment and a diagnostic process. 
you do the assessment, you read the situation, you do an analysis on the situation, and then you implement a solution that's dentistry, that's medicine, that is optometry, it is clinical. And law enforcement is the same way. It does the same thing. And if we don't teach that as a large part of the skill foundation, we are really, really impairing the officer in a functional capacity, and we're depriving the citizenry of the type of professional that they deserve. So given that, how do we, and let's look at, let's look at firearm skills. Um, you know, we could look at arresting control skills. We could look at communication skills. We could integrate it with de-escalation skills and psychology. We could do it in a variety of different ways, but let's narrow it down to just firearm skills. We know that if you take somebody, and this is because we've done the research on it. Uh, yes, we've got a published peer review study on that. If you, if you take somebody and you give them 60 hours of firearms instructor instruction, when your range instructor is there, starting with range safety and firearms and, and how the gun works and disassembly and cleaning and et cetera, and, and then trigger press and side picture and all the rest of that and draw. And, and we know that by the time they graduate and move into their FTO program, they are no more than 10% better at shooting accuracy and speed in the type of combat situations that officers get into. They are no more than 10% better than someone that's never had a gun in their hand in their life. And if that doesn't reverberate you as a professional, uh, those in the audience, it really should. All of that money, all of that time, everything we've invested, to gain 10% over somebody that's never had a gun in their hand in their life. And yes, we've done that. We've tested novices on a range with live functioning ammo uh, and, and looked at speed and, and uh, accuracy. And they're only 10% less than our trained academy graduates. So how can we make that better? And what we're looking at is we're looking, first of all, drop the block structure. We know that, that you build skills much better, you retain skills much better, if you do it in small chunks. Uh, and the question becomes, how can you do small chunks on the range? Uh, well, you can't. But just about everything that is involved in firearms training can be done with a cert gun and gear, leather gear, in a classroom and you can do small chunks of it. You could drive, you could look at uh, focus, visual focus, and you could drive the gun right through your line of gaze to a target and accuracy. And you could do that with a high level of speed and skill. And you could do it by the time people graduate from the academy. The draw from the holster and the weapon alignment and position and accuracy is amazing. You got a cert gun and you got leather and you spend a lot of time in classroom. And when you get to the range, you get people acquired the, uh, the muzzle flip and the, and the flash and the bang. You get them used to that and looking through that, looking through it, visual dominance through the action of that. And you've got a very accurate, 
combat shooter without really firing many bullets at all. But what's more important, how many decisions will your graduates of your academy make on force, particularly deadly force, or force decisions that lead up to that or could extend out to that before they graduate? Because that's really the key. We know that you need to shoot accurately, both to stop the threat as well as to save your life. But the real question is, how good at you are you at making the decision about when and how to use force and how it integrates with other skills? Unless you've got a gun by your side and, and, and all of the other force options that you have, and you're communicating and working on communicating and looking at what force is appropriate for this situation, unless we have taught people how to do that really effectively, we have missed the most important part of teaching people how to use a gun. You see, I don't care how good you are with a scalpel. <laughs> if you don't know where and how to cut <laughs> and when to cut, uh, you're not a very good surgeon. And it's the same way with, uh, with the police profession. And so we really need to build that. Now, you're probably saying because many people will, will uh, come from large departments that are listening to this, you're probably saying, well, you should get that in your FDO training. And I want to remind people that a lot of our, uh, in fact, Adam, we were just talking about a, um, an association of small town police officers, uh, police agencies, because a lot, of, a lot of officers graduating from academies, in fact, up to two-thirds, depending upon what statute you look at, will have no more pre-service training than what they get in an academy. By the time they get in a squad car, they will ride along for a week or two with a chief, get oriented to a community or with an officer, get oriented, and then they're ready to roll, take a shift, respond to calls. And so we have got to build those skills before they leave the academy. And we have got to do it really differently. And I'm telling you, you could, really, you could really gain a lot if you took those 60 hours, broke them up into five or 10 minute intervals and trained with guns five to 10 minutes per day, every day in the academy, and then included decision training along the way. Just two minutes of decision-making off a scenario that you caught on YouTube, the trainer got on YouTube. You can look at what could this officer have done before this happened? Raise the question. And you could be doing that every single day, two to three minutes a day throughout the academy. And boy, would we build skills. And we would build insight. And we would build people looking at what can I do with this situation because they will have made multiple complex decisions before they get to a simulator. And a simulator like Virtua or, uh, or TI training or uh, others, are, uh, there's lots of simulator uh, training that's out there that are really good. And, and I, I encourage uh, simulator training, but we need to do a lot of training. And we need to bring that into the classroom on, on decision training. So anyway, Adam, does that answer your question? Yeah, I love that. And you know, it's, it's really interesting. It draws me back to some of our core officer training courses in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces. And we talk about building in that decision-making foundation just throughout the day. 
And that was something that happened all the time. If you were, if you were the platoon commander for that day, um, you had a ton of decisions that got thrown at you by the, the instructors all throughout the day, right from the, right from PT in the morning through to lunch. Um, who are you putting on guard on firewatch? Who you're doing, who's doing this, who's doing that. And you're forced to make decisions on the fly very, very rapidly. And then you have to live with those decisions and see how they play out. And then you, and then it's a learning opportunity, even if you screw it up. And so. Right. We have to teach people how to make decisions. And the way to do it is to have them make decisions and to make mistakes because to, to make a decision uh, for which uh, you, it has to be perfect. uh, You never risk and you'll never stretch into new boundaries and, and you'll never get to consider things that you said were so important. We get stuck in our compartments And when you're looking at something, you need to step beyond and you need to see from outside. And you need to do that by taking risks and decision-making. And the only way to do that is to do what you're talking about. Have people make lots of decisions and understand how complex they are and how involved they are. I can see a whole nother rabbit hole opening up (laughs) for us to go down. So I'm going to try to resist that urge and I have a hard time doing that. Before we go there, I'd like to give you one quote that I think is really, really representative of this and that hopefully academy instructors will get a lot out of it. Chad Lyman, who's one of our advanced specialist grads. It's a 300-hour course that I said in which you study the literature, uh, look at all the journal articles and the textbooks and, and, and interview the authors of those articles and textbooks. Chad Lyman's a graduate of that class. And, and Chad Lyman... Uh, said when we were talking about this at the end of the course, um, he said, you know, the key is you got to do a little, a lot. (laughs) Chad's a mixed martial artist, works with special forces, dynamite, dynamite guy. Uh, But that's it. You got to do a little, a lot. Uh, And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's communication or force or uh, decisions about law or anything else. You do a little, a lot, and that's the way people learn, and that's how they retain what they learn. Doing a lot, a little, sinks a ship. I love that. I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to get Chad's quote in there because one hundred percent. You know, and let's let's talk about. I want to talk about what for science has available for people right now. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I've never heard of for science, or maybe you have and you just didn't know how to get involved in their training. Um, I mean. Forscience.org is the website. It's the main website. And uh, there's a whole bunch of, you can go through the researches all on there, all the uh, articles, the journal entries, everything from their training is all in there. For me, if I were to recommend one course and, uh, you know, you can, I'm sure you, you may have a different opinion, but for me, your five-day course, your basic course on the Force Science certification is kind of a must-have if you're a law enforcement instructor and you teach anything from use of force to firearms, uh, investigations, it is really um, one of the most comprehensive courses that I've ever seen. So I just want to I just want to put out that that out there for everybody that if you haven't checked that out already, you definitely should. Thank you, Adam, because that's one of our courses. And uh, you know, and we now have a PhD in uh, in biomechanics, kinesiology, uh, working with us teaching that component. And on the other end, uh, we have Ed Geiselman. Uh, PhD, 40 years at UCLA, teaching cognitive interviewing. He's the author of Cognitive Interviewing. Uh, He literally named it and created it with Dick Fisher. 
uh, and in between we have uh, our, our med docs uh, who have done the research. Yeah, yeah done, there is research on lateral vascular neck restraint. There's research on, on proning. Uh, there's research on uh, just um, XD. Uh, these guys have, have done the research on it. Uh, so it, it is really, it's a high level. It is the most academically credentialed police training program out there today. So that, that is our core course. But we do have a, a one-day fundamentals about our research and about our focus. We have a two-day fundamentals uh, that, about our research and, and, and focus. Uh, we have a, um, uh, as I said, we've got a two-hour uh, really integrated, relevant uh, de-escalation program that's interactive and it's going to be uh, online uh, very soon. We've got a uh, one-day de-escalation program. We have a two-day instructor de-escalation program. And these are really very practical. Uh, for instance, we, we've got a, uh, an assessment process for helping officers understand, can they establish contact and build rapport? If not, what direction do they go into? And if they can't, uh, if they can, what direction they go into and what they do with that based on their current skill level. And if they can't establish contact and build rapport, how do they manage a scene? What are the resources they bring together? It's really practical and very applied, our two-day uh, de-escalation program, taught by, uh, again, you mentioned Chris Butler and also uh, Dr. John Azar uh, Dickens, but we also have uh, Nicole Florisi, who's uh, uh, really great at, at crisis communication. So uh, we've got some really great instructors working with us on that course. And we're also, um, we've got a two-day body cam course uh, in which we look at uh, uh, the issues about the difference between digital memory and human memory uh, and, and look deeply into uh, not so much the, uh, the frame rates, but the issue about uh, how human beings see a rapidly evolving critical incident and the psychological and perceptual phenomenon connected to that and how that might be captured on uh, video, uh, either cell phone, body cam. It, you know, there's, there's something like easily... Uh, 60, maybe 80 different types of cameras that are out there today. I'm not talking about camera types. I'm talking about literally, uh, whether it's, it's cell phone or whether it's CCTV camera or it's ring doorbells or it's, yes, they've got a button in a shoe camera that can record. Anyway, it's just amazing that's out there. But we look at all of the technology, the types of lens, et cetera, and we look at uh, such things as how and when do you show that video to an officer. I'll give an example and you'll understand why when I frame it this way. Would you ever take a video of a sexual assault and show it to the survivor of a sexual assault, uh, uh, the, the survivor of a sexual assault as an attempt to increase the memory of that person and not expect some emotional arousal or some impact on the interview by having that person view that incident, the reality, bringing them back, hitting them in the face. We're, we're very much aware of the implications, the human performance implications of what it is we do and how to make it more effective while comporting to law policy and the best investigative procedures. 
So we, we have a body cam course that kind of looks at those human performance elements and also the technical elements and looks, and looks at what, what do investigators need to know? How do we need to frame things? How do we, how do we show it to, uh, uh, to civilians, et cetera? And we know that some people are under constraint degrees, so, uh, so they have got to show video within a period of time. But there are ways to show it, and there are ways to show it. And how you show it really can create problems for you or really can help you out. And so uh, in a very practical and applied way, we bring the science uh, and we bring the knowledge of human behavior and the realities of video in today's law enforcement and society. And we mesh it all together um, in a, uh, in a two day program that will be online. Uh, we'll be ready to go with that uh, the end of next month. Awesome. So yeah, this should be, um, as you hear this, that should be available almost uh, right away um, from the time this, this episode launches. And, um, and, and Bill, just real quickly, uh, before we, we jump off here, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your knowledge and, and wisdom with us. And, you know, it's, it's always an honor when I get a chance to talk with you. We've had, we've had a lot of opportunities lately, um, and every single time I take so much away from it. You should see the amount of notes I have written down right now uh, just from our short conversation. And I'm really looking forward to a lot of the collaborations that we've talked about moving forward. And so if you listen to this podcast and you like what you hear Dr. Lewinsky talking about with Four Science, uh, stay tuned for more because there's going to be a lot more coming down the pipe for you. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for, for taking the time with me today. It's been an honor. Adam, can I put in a plug? One more plug? One, 100%. Uh, okay. Vertra uh, has just offered a dozen free scholarships to uh, a five-day cert course. So they will cover the tuition, $1,650 tuition for the week-long course. Uh, and if you go to our website or you go to virtual website, uh, you can enter or you can nominate an officer. And uh, uh, they've got their pick in 2021 of any of the courses that we offer, including our online course, because uh, we'll be putting it online uh, as well by, by 2021. So, um, that's another collaboration between us and, and Berta. But uh, Adam, it's, yeah. it's always a pleasure to work with you. Uh, your insight and, and uh, your commitment to the profession is deeply appreciated by us. And uh, we really enjoy working with you and what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, we share that, that value. So thank you for having, me, having us on and the opportunity to, uh, to share our work with the audience. All right, that wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at iletsummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.